Hello, everybody. This is your old pal, the Proop Dog, and this is a very special episode of The Smartest Man in the World. It is, in fact, the Greg Proop's Chat Show episode of The Smartest Man in the World, and our guests are the fabulous Lipsinka, the record producer, Tony Visconti, and the playwright, Mark Crowley. I hope you enjoy our one-time deviation from a tried-and-true format to explore some of the most creative minds of the last zillion years, and I thank you. Good evening, Manhattan. Welcome to the Greg Proops Chat Show. I'm Greg Proops speaking to you from far, far away, from the far climbs of the backstage. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a fabulous show for you here tonight. But first, before let's get going with one of the most intensely wonderful performers that New York has ever produced, please welcome the fabulous Lipsinka. Thank you. How lovely to be a woman. The wait was well worthwhile. How lovely to wear mascara and smile, a woman's smile. How lovely to have a figure that's round instead of flat. Whenever I hear boys whistle, hey, now I'm what they're whistling at. I'm a girl, and by me that's only great. I am proud that my silhouette is curvy, that I walk with a sweet and girlish gait, with my hips kind of swivelly and swervy. I adore being dressed in something frilly. When my date comes to get me at my place, out I go with my Joe or John or Willie, like a filly who is ready for the race When I have a brand new hairdo With my eyelashes all in curl I float as the clouds on air do I enjoy being a girl When men say I'm cute and funny And my teeth are on teeth but pearl I just lap it up like honey I enjoy being a girl I flip when a fellow sends me flowers I drool over dresses made of lace I talk on the telephone for hours With a pound and a half of cream upon my face I'm strictly a female, female And my future, I hope, will be In the arms of a brave and free male Who'll enjoy being a guy Having a girl like me Thank you Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage the delightful host of this evening, the fabulous Greg Proops. One more time for the fabulous lip syncle, ladies and gentlemen. Lippy, where are all y'all so we can go uh, check you out? Are you playing gigs, or are you got a website, or a Twitter feed? And oh, all that? well, now I have Lipsica merchandise for sale. Well, let's sell some. That's, I wish I had brought some. I should have thought. I was so busy turning myself into a girl. 
it's such a, a full-time job. It really is. Yes, I had to go from a woman to a girl tonight. Fantastic. <laughs> I'm all for youth. Uh, I'm 31 again, and it's fantastic. Uh, I don't care how many times people ask. I'm staying at the same age till I die. Greg, uh, I was trying to remember the last time we did this. I think it was 10 years ago. Well, right after Kennedy. Um, it was uh, the Warren Commission had just convened the last time we had the show here, and it was a very different show. We had Toadie Fields and uh, Jackie Leonard were on that show. Thank you. These jokes are just for me, ladies and gentlemen. You'll, you can Google them on the way home. That's the kind of show I put on, a show that you enjoy years from now. I know who Toadie Fields is. Thank you, darling. So where can they buy this lip sync of merchandise? Uh, on lipsinka.com. Well, there a, you are. And you have to spell it correctly, L-Y-P-S-I-N-K-A.com. Ah, that's exactly how I would have spelled it <laughs> if I was going to take a chance. Uh, it's so awesome to have you here tonight. Thank you for it's being here. It's great to see you. Thank it's you. great to see you. It's great to be seen. Uh, I'm not gay, and I make no case for it whatsoever. Uh, I'll play on Broadway. I'll watch Frozen and cry. I, uh, I have no qualms uh, about myself. It's fabulous to be back in here in New York. In, I can't get it out. In New York again. Uh, why are you so jinky, Greg? I'm high on uh, antihistamine. Uh, I took some uh, day-night day, cough syrup over-the-counter. Uh, I went to Dwayne Reed today because I wanted to be in an airless room with a bunch of people I felt threatened by <laughs> and uh, have miscreants wander by with one eye and a head like a sandwich and shit like that. So I was at the Dwayne Reed around the corner from my hotel. We're staying at a fabulous place. It's called um, Victor Hugo's Le Mis Hotel. Um, you stay in the bottom. I'm sharing a room with a couple of rodents and... Uh, it's extraordinarily cold. There's a frosty wind blowing through. And I went to the Duane Reed today, and I was uh, walking up and down the aisles, making friends with people and whatnot, and uh, checking out some of the fine products. And uh, not a lot of security, I had to say. It was laxer than I remember. Uh, now that you have CVS and, and, and horrible chains like that, Duane Reed I always love because in the winter, it's uh, approximately the temperature of Lawrence of Arabia's attack on Aqaba. And... Uh, <laughs> And in the summer, boiling. It's the same temperature all year round, and that's what I love about Dwayne Reed. So I'm a little high on cough syrup tonight, uh, if that's okay with everybody. I'm sorry it's not something more exotic, like I'm on an Adderall K-hole or whatever, but I'm afraid that's it. I've had a little bit of a wild week here in New York City. On Tuesday, I, uh, I got a kidney stone. I don't mind telling you. Uh, at 31, that's horrible. Um, <laughs> And I had to go to the emergency room, but not uh, all at once, if you know what I mean. I'm a man, and therefore I'm in denial about everything. Uh, I believe... Thank you for laughing at that, Lovsenka. I'm not, so... Exactly. If only I'd been a girl, I would have toughed it out like girls do. I'd have just passed the fucker and then showed it in the morning, set in a piece of jewelry. You know what I mean? I'd have cut it in, like, facets and then just had it on velvet. When everybody woke up, look what I passed last night. Isn't it fantastic? It's worth more now because I cut it while you were sleeping using my eyes as laser beams. Uh, no, about 4 a.m., uh, we got off the plane. We flew on JetBlue, which is America's most glamorous cable, basic cable airline. And uh, if, you are, if you didn't hate basic cable before you flew JetBlue, a whole day of it will really put the fucking kibosh on you. Uh, Bravo, I think, is the, uh, the, uh, the essence of pure evil. I don't know how many uh, murderers and weird, uh, unbelievable vagrants they can have on their station who are eventually going to you know, be pursued by the federal authorities for tax fraud and every manner of uh, 
In any case, I drift. But here's the point of this. We got off. First of all, I had the middle seat because my wife likes the window. And the cat who sat next to me was large. What can I tell you? I don't mean like John Goodman large or circus large. It wasn't Fellini large. You know what I mean? I wasn't squashed the whole way. But I sat like this for six hours. And every time I tried to adjust, for some reason, JetBlue puts the TV controls on the armrest that you share with the person next to you. Well, he had enveloped it like Jabba the Hutt, okay? There was no way without uh, stormtroopers I could have lifted that arm. He was Baron Harkonnen without the lift. You know what I'm saying? He was just puddled up there. So every time, and he fell asleep, and he fell asleep in the age-old male style of um, you're a bass in a small pond in Georgia. You know the... So I tried to sneak my hand underneath without coming on to him to turn up the TV channel. And every once in a while he'd stir. And I was like in a Poe story and shit. (laughs) Trying not to wake him up before I strangled him to death with his own refuse from the $8 cheese box he bought. Uh, So he gets to New York and um, uh, about four in the morning, uh, something's terribly wrong amidships. And... uh, and then I knew that I was going to have a stone because I had one a couple years ago. And um, I don't know how big the stone I passed was, but it felt like Bill Wyman. A- about that big of a stone. And uh, thank you for the five people who know who Bill Wyman is in this room. I'll be explaining. The show's only an hour, you guys. So you're going to have to jump on the proof satirical choo-choo at some point. You, you, there's no holding back, really. This is almost over. Uh, wasn't it great? Um, and... Uh, it's just a ceaseless pain and then they how do you know you're having a kidney stone Greg well you can't sit down and not like that song from the 60s Um, you can't sit down you can't lay down you simply pace back and forth like you're in a cage and stuff until it comes out of you Uh, so we went to this emergency room at one of New York's finest emergency hospitals it was uh, our sister of the contaminated bowl Uh, (laughs) the septic sisters of the unbelievable stricken and foundation of so Once we got in, it was fantastic, but the waiting room was a human zoo. There's really no way to describe the mayhem. And by the way, this was Monday, Tuesday morning in New York. Tuesday morning in New York. There was a guy with a complete spear through his head. Um, There was someone who had a snowshoe inside them. And one dude was having a continuing argument with himself over where he was born taking both his part and the part of the social worker who we presume had interrogated him at some point in his life. Because he went, well, you said Puerto Rico, but I was born in Rockford, Illinois. Well, you cannot be born in two places. And that went on for the whole time I paced back and forth. Uh, Then I went to the bathroom and there was people smoking in the bathroom and they were like, come on in. I'm like, all right, I will. I don't care. I'm having a stone. I'm going to sweat on you. How's that grab you? You smoke all you like because I'm going to douse your cigarette with my perspiration. Uh, I got in. Everything was cool. They gave me drugs and shit. We argued a little, but not so much. He was a Jewish doctor with a yarmulke. So I, I, threw, a, I threw the case that Menemides or uh, you know, Moses or Solomon or anyone would have thrown. I'm like, it's not so much that I you know, want to take the drugs to be high. It's just that I'm not at home. <laughs> and he was like, well, we could make the argument. And when he started to do that, I just laid back. Go, you're a witness. So he made the argument out loud. Well, I could give you the drugs because you're not at home. And so I'll just give them to you. And I'm like, that was awesome how you decided on that. Thank you. What a mad adjudication that was. Uh, And someone said to me, uh, the the pain's pretty wild, but uh, when it's over, it feels good um, because it stopped. Someone said, 
there's nothing more painful than a kidney stone than childbirth. And I don't know that that's true. I think that's overemphasizing male pain a little. I can't imagine passing a, an eight and a half pound salmon uh, out of an area usually reserved for, you know, bon temps. Uh, so I wouldn't say that it's more painful than a childbirth. I would say because they make you rate it when you're in the emergency room. A series of people, very caring, nice people, some of whom are named Daisy, come up to you and go, on a scale of one to ten. And I was like, at this point, like, I was like Joe Cocker and shit. What would you think if I sang out of tune? I couldn't talk. I could just gibber in futile anguish is what I was doing. And, uh, and, and they made me sit. And I was like, I don't want to sit. I want to dance around the room in pain and hop from foot to foot like a Walter Brennan character. Well, you ever seen been stung by a dead bee? I wanted, you know, that's how I was feeling. And uh, they go, on a scale of one to ten, how's the pain? And I'm like, mm, what's one? You know what I mean? Is one a paper cut or is one like, fuck, I drank that milkshake too fast. <laughs> and then what's 10? Dead? <laughs> you know what I mean? If you're feeling a 10 of pain, at that point, your heart's going to stop and you're just, all your organs are going to shoot out your nose. I mean, I don't know how much fucking more it has to hurt. I'm quivering with pain. And I was like, uh, I'm an eight? I tried to highball it a little. I'm an eight. Uh, does that mean I'm going to get heroin or, you know, a heroin? A heroin-based derivative? <laughs> Can I get something William Burroughs would take like on a Tuesday about this time? That's what I need. I need that power and majesty of druggers. And, uh, it, I would rate it uh, more specifically to my life. Uh, I wouldn't say it was the pain of childbirth. I'd say it was the, uh, where I was feeling uh, in horror and terror was uh, about the feeling I get when I have a meeting with my agent in Hollywood. That was about where... Thank you. That was a Hollywood joke. I knew it wouldn't play in New York, but fuck you. I thought I'd do it anyway, because believe me, people in L.A. are going to be like, that was the best joke you did all night. <laughs> Years ago, they found a, a, a mastodon, a mammoth, a California, a Colombian mammoth, in fact, uh, outside of the La Brea Tar Pits on Wilshire Boulevard in Hollywood, right, in Beverly Hills. And my manager's office is about a mile and a half down from where they found this woolly mammoth. And the woolly mammoth they named Zev. Uh, yes, because it's that neighborhood. He was Jewish. And the mammoths of Hollywood were Jewish, just like the people who work there now. And uh, they found him, and he was from 11,000 years ago, and there was a postcard and a picture of him. They'd reconstructed his whole face with the tusks and everything. And uh, I was like, wow, that's funny. Uh, Zev is buried here in Wilshire, and my manager's a mile and a half away. And the difference is, uh, Zev has called me about my career in the last couple of years. <laughs> Thank you. That was very kind of you. I don't want to do any more time because we have such a tremendous show for you here tonight. I couldn't be more excited about the people we have uh, to bring out. Uh, first of all, we've had the fabulous Lipsinka, and, uh, and, uh, but the guests we have tonight are uh, a tremendous. Uh, first off, let's, uh, let's bring up a man who I've known for the last couple of years, and uh, you, you may know him as the producer of uh, such groups as Thin Lizzy, uh, The Moody Blues, T-Rex, David Bowie, and Morrissey. Will you please put your hands together and welcome Mr. Tony Visconti. <laughs> You need a mic? I need a mic. There's loads of water. How are you, Tony? I'm quite well, thank you. Good, I'm not. Uh, it's awesome <laughs> to heard. joking, of course. No, I'm fine I, now. Look, I'm drinking. I never had a stone. No? Like, no, no. You're not, so lucky. 
Yeah, I guess I am. It's like giving birth to a small uh, mineral that you don't want. <laughs> how big was it? I don't know how big it was. Uh, they didn't measure it in hectares. Um, <laughs> it was considerable. Uh, I think I could get a color TV for it. Let me put it that way. Wow, good, good. Uh, no, when it, it, it's, they feel big, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Sort of anything that's inside you feels big. Where, where is it exactly? Come, does it come out of your penis or something? God, I how hope do they, so. How do, they get, how do they get it out? If it came out my nose, I think I'd lose my shit. <laughs> yes, it starts in the uh, kidney area, right? either on this side or this side, and then it travels through the ureter, yeah. and that's the part that you feel. It's oh. it's long so journey through the ureter. I wasn't far off. No, you were not. Oh. And then it comes out your penis, as you call it. Uh, <laughs> okay, I call, dick. Yeah. <laughs> I, call, I call mine the Purple Avenger. Oh, wow. Sometimes B-52. There's a lot of... <laughs> the vanilla destroyer mm. um, <laughs> thank you the dick jokes are just for the guys and yeah. it came woo indeed fucking A bro uh, and eventually it came out it's not so bad yeah. when it comes out when it comes out it's, that's, it's over you know what I mean yeah. it's the pain leading up to it yes but I'm glad you're in good health and, uh, from one to ten <laughs> the pain was eight yeah. and you got your heroin or not no, they gave me um, co- hodo, hodro, hydrocodone. Yeah. Yeah, oh, it's, hydro- it's a mythical drug. It has eight heads. That's Russ, Russ Limbaugh, you take, that's his drug of choice. That's why I feel so yeah. deaf today. Yeah. <laughs> and I also, uh, after taking uh, Rush Limbaugh's drug for a couple of days, I hate women. It's really weird. <laughs> Something came over me in the last couple of days. Uh, your piping voices are going right through me. And stop with the demanding equality. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> And I'm kind of sick of black people, too. It's kind of, it's really, I think the codone's been working on me. Yeah, cool. He was taking 47 a day, and he still did a show. Yeah, that's amazing. All right? I've heard the show, actually. I could believe it. Yeah. 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 He's out there. Oblivious to anything, Mm. except that little tiny agenda. He lives in his own small fishbowl of a world, um, where there's all these perceived enemies. Yeah. And I wish I had that kind of faith, you know what I mean? I think that's the problem with being, having any kind of open mind, is that the world's more scary. Yeah. Uh, when you live in a, in a combative uh, bulwark, you know, where there's Mexicans climbing over the walls all the time or whatever, yeah. it makes the world easier to understand. Yes, yeah. Them and us. Right. Yeah. It's a simple uh, formula. We should bomb people if they're different. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, it, yeah, the world breaks down super easy. So. Right. Yeah. We're giving Rush Limbaugh way too much time on this. I know. Uh, do you want to hear some funny stories about people I've worked with? <laughs> no, I How that, prefer to, that for a segue. I'd prefer to talk about my health for another 25 okay. minutes. <laughs> yes, please. Okay. What about um, uh, T-Rex? Because I love glam rock uh, more than life itself. And uh, people who listen to the podcast will know that, that I never stop talking about it. And right. uh, um, Mark Boland seems like such a fascinating uh, individual. He was a wonderful, fascinating individual. I'll, I'll tell you something. It took me about uh, two months to realize that he was Jewish. Really? And here's how I found out. You know, he was very beautiful. He had this, cur- this curly hair, like uh, Donovan, Jimi Hendrix hair and all that. But he wore all these, these gypsy clothes that were a bit torn and tattered. Very stylish, mind you. It wasn't, uh, you know, he went to Portobello Road and bought them. Yeah. And I said, that's a beautiful shirt you're wearing. He goes, oh, you mean this schmata? Ah, that was the giveaway. Shmata. How did you know that word? Yeah, I'm Jewish, so and that elegant. was a big revelation. But he was so full of himself. The night I met him, I thought that uh, 
I had to produce them. I, I, when I went to uh, London in 1967, my purpose was to find, to discover the new Beatles. Really? I thought they were on every street corner. I thought you'd go to this corner, you know, South Kensington. Hello, darling. How are you? You know, yeah. the Beatles, you know. But uh, I didn't. It was a lot harder than that. But my boss said, go out and find a group, it, and a, a group of your own. You've, I was an apprentice for about a year. And I walked into this club. My first night, I saw this advert for Tyrannosaurus Rex. And I went down there, and I heard his beautiful voice and his, his mate who was playing the bongo drum, Steve Peregrine, took. And they were called Tyrannosaurus Rex in those days. So the audience, about, about this size, uh, all sitting on the floor, not at tables, and they, they were mesmerized. And I went up to him afterwards, and I said, you're just fantastic. My name is Tony Visconti. I'm, I'm a record producer, and I'd love to produce you. And he goes... Oh, you're the eighth producer who came in this week. Ah. John Lennon was here last night, and uh, we'll probably go with his label, Grapefruit. You know, did you, before Apple, there was Grapefruit. I did not know that. Or maybe just after, yeah. So Really? Never, never, grapefruit? I swear to God. That was Lennon's idea. Let's have a label called Grapefruit. Awesome. So I just, I just shrugged, and I said, well, you know, you, you win some, you lose some. And this was my first, so I'd lost my first. So he said, but just in case, he goes, uh, let me have your phone number. And uh, the next morning... I was telling my boss, Denny Cordell, who was very famous, a very famous record producer. I said, I'm, I saw this group last night. They're like Donovan, the incredible string band, but they've got something really quirky about them. And uh, the phone rang, and it was Mark Boland's 10 o'clock in the morning out on the street from a, a payphone saying, oh, we just happen to be in the neighborhood. <laughs> Could we come up and uh, audition for Denny Cordell? So that's the way it began. That's, that's the, you know. So they really came up from the street they, with, with guitars and bongos? Guitars, bongos, and the carpet they were sitting on. Yes. Before. They just laid the carpet down on the floor. Was it like a sheep or something? Or? No, no, it was a... Like it, an Indian it, it, thing? It, yeah, an Indian thing. Yeah, like a flying you know, magic carpet. Now, did he already, was he already wearing like, all the groovy makeup and all that jazz? And- no, not yet. He was definitely into his bohemian gypsy... You know, like Donovan and Gypsy Dave yeah. phase and all that. Uh, Steve was Gypsy Dave, you know. Yeah. It was so cool. He was really, really cool. And there was a group called the, the Incredible String Band sure. in, in England in those days. who were, They were all in the same kind of Tolkien trip. And, <laughs> you know, Tolkien and elves and right. sprites and all the fairies and water nymphs and all that. And all this, you know, that, that's hard to write about a water nymph. I think it is. It's but a, a whole, difficult lyric. Yeah. Yeah, but Led Zeppelin uh, made a career out of it. Heaven knows. But anyway, yeah, it's true. But anyway, Bolin, uh, the next meeting, he, I met, I met Bolin. He he came with his uh, the the three volumes of Lord of the Rings, and he said, "If you want to work with me, this is what I'm about." And he gave me the, the ah. So it's true. Frodo does live and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I was fantastic. He I, really said, "This is what I'm all yes, about." Yes, yeah. I resisted this book. I, I lived in New York at the time, and you saw all this graffiti on the wall. Frodo lives, and I said, "I will fucking not read that book. I fucking hate Frodo lives." You know, and I hear like he's pushing the three things in front of me, which I had to read. I, I enjoyed them in the end. Sure, but that's what he was really about in those days. So this was before the glam period, yeah. and then of course, about uh, four albums later, he picked up an electric guitar. Uh, his PR person put some uh, glitter on his eyelids. It was the PR person? The, yeah, his PR person, Chalita Secunda, oh. who was also our uh, cocaine dealer as well. But, That's uh, so She convenient. had great ideas. She yeah. never went to sleep. She never slept. Really? So she is an ideas person. Yeah. 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 I got another idea. <laughs> 
So that, that was exciting times. We switched over from the uh, incredible string band period to flat-out glam rock and, you know, glitzy jackets and, and the rest, as they say. And there was, but there was no thought about that. It, it was simply an organic thing. One day she put the glitter on him, and all of a sudden it was... And she took him to New Bond Street, where he, she, he, he was a very short man. And sure. he had, like, little feet, so she put uh, f- uh, women's shoes on him. Perfect. And it, it was just perfect. perfect. It was just, he was the right person, the right time, with the right lady. Now, was he the first big uh, glam star to hit in England, or had there been someone before him, or did he really knock it down and then all the other glam groups happen? Well, I would, I would say Bowie and uh, T-Rex and Mark Boland invented glam rock within two days of each other. Right. You know, it, was, it was an idea in the, in the, uh, in the air. Uh, there's a, a great concert that uh, Bowie and I did with Mick Ronson on guitar at the Roundhouse in London, where we, we said, instead of going on stage in jeans and flannel, sh- you know, yeah. lumberjack shirts like every other group, and we, and we didn't have a lot of beards or anything, you know, they were into the beard thing way before Williamsburg. This was about uh, 1970. Sure. So it was a big beard thing, flannel shirt thing and all that. And we went on dressed as, uh, David went on as Rainbow Man. He had all these diaphanous scarves oh my and, and all that. I went on as Hype Man. We, uh, 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 Angie Bowie and my girlfriend uh, Liz Hartley made a, like a kind of a Superman outfit for me. And I, I had a big letter H on my chest because the name of the group was Hype. David Bowie and Hype. Well, I, I'll, I'll make this short because here's the cool oh, thing. We, please we, no. We got on stage. I think we're all pretty excited about Hype Man and the diaphanous yeah, David Bowie guy. I know, I know you're good. So anyway, we did a kick-ass concert. We were yeah. really well rehearsed and all that, but we got booed a lot. You know, uh-huh. for the first three or four songs, like, get off the stage, you faggots, and yeah. stuff like that. You was know? there mime, may I ask? No, not, well, he was miming before that, but oh, he okay. didn't, there was no mime in this show. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah, all right. Yeah, no, yeah. that thing. No, none of that. None of that. Um, so anyway, we didn't know this, but uh, a friend of ours, Ray Saunders, took photos of that evening. And he showed us, he was a friend of Mark Boland too, and independently of us knowing this, Mark was at that concert that night, dressed as, a, as Gypsy Dave. And uh, his, we, there's a photo of him leaning on the stage, his arms are crossed, and he's leaning on stage, and he's watching David and I prancing about, dressed up in, in all these clothes, you know. So that's what I'd like... About a week later, he started dressing up and, and all that. So it was simultaneous. I would say it ha- the credit has to be given to both of them for starting that movement. It's fantastic. It's something I've subscribed to ever since then. How, how young was the crowd for them? Did it start out as teenagers or did that just develop? Oh, it was teenagers immediately. Uh-huh. Yeah, both. Definitely both. Like how young of teenagers? Really, really young? Well, yeah, 13. 30, wow. You know, like uh, Mark was so pretty and he was yeah. androgynous like yeah. David was. And that, that's how you get the young girls. Oh, yeah. And androgyny. I have been See, working on that so long. You, you should try it. You know, it's... Uh, I'm past the androgynous leopard pants well, stage. It really, you really get the girls. And a lot of yeah. boys, too. Oh, I'm, I'm, it's, a, it's a very <laughs> wide net. And a very fine net, too, because it catches everything. That's what I approve of about uh, glam rock. That's where speed metal lost me. It's a bit duty, and there's guys with mustaches, and you can't yeah. understand the words, and no one ever says dance. Well, no. no. <laughs> Well, we pushed them off the charts, you know, the, yeah. the, the glam rock movement, and uh, it was just fabulous. I mean, I, didn't re- I don't think that it, the glam rock was the clothing and the style. The music was, we were borrowing heavily from Little Richard. Oh, yeah. Uh, Buddy Holly, you know, Elvis, like, uh-huh-huh. Mark was always saying, uh-huh-huh, in yeah. his songs, you know. But she's my woman of old, and she's not very old, uh-huh-huh. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. a song called Hot Love, you know. Hot so we, we, we were channeling the, um, 
the 50s and we look like space, space age freaks. So that's completely intentional because at the very end of Bang It Gong, he goes, meanwhile, I was still thinking. And that's right out of Chuck Berry. Little Queenie. Yeah. yeah. Chuck Berry. Yeah. That's intentional. That's and wildly Totally intentional. intentional. Yeah. He gave away, you know, his, uh, the song called Jeepster is an outright, the riff is an outright steal from some other R&B songs right. from those days, you know. Wow. Yeah. 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 And you gave it no thought. But what I did to it is I made it very glamorous uh, uh, string arrangements. I would put these really soaring strings over it, and I would double a lot of his guitar solos on a cello. And it, when you, you know, if it's just a, a crazy guitar solo, it sounds like a crazy guitar solo. But when you have four cellos playing the exact notes, it sounds like a cool arrangement. Yeah. It sounds like it was premeditated. But in fact, I did all these string things after the fact. And we had some great singers uh, from the Turtles, you know, Flo and Eddie, yeah. who worked with Zappa. They, they brought in those ridiculously high, screechy voices, you know. Uh, we didn't use women for until three years. Like we had always had men pretending to be women, not yeah. either singing the backing vocals or doing chick parts. You know. What about Twenty Century Boys? That one, then on that one. Yeah, that was one of the first okay. sessions where he used real females. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I did it for, after um, uh, Flo and Eddie left for parts, greater parts. Uh, Mark and I did the high falsetto voices, so you could hear me singing on Telegram Sam. Really? And uh, all, the, all the songs after you, any time you hear a screechy male voice after that, it's me and, and Mark. How did uh, Telegram Sam's lyrics are so tremendous? Um, did, that just flowed out of him, I presume. Did he pour over it, or he had he had like a, you know the, those loose leaf books that you get in mm. school, full of poetry. He could just open to any page and put a 12-bar blues to it and teach it to the band in 15 minutes and we'd be in the studio recording it. He was extremely prolific. Where I would say, like, David was the opposite. He'd work on a lyric for months. He'd work on a song for months. But Mark, it just oozed out of him. Really? Yeah. And did you actually work that fast? How long did it take to make, like, Electric Warrior? Electric Warrior was made uh, in the wake of him having a huge hit single in England, which was Hot Love. Uh-huh. It, it was number seven for uh, uh, number one for seven weeks oh my. in the UK. So he was just a star immediately. Yeah. Well, and, not immediately after. And, and our uh, label uh, owner said, you got to go in and make an album. Yeah. But they were already touring for Hot Love, so I had to catch them in New York, in L.A., in London, in, in France, and we, we, and of course coming back to the UK to finish the album. So it was five countries involved. And really? I just had to get him on the fly, and luckily he had that loose leaf book. He'd just flip it open. Yeah, I've got a song. It's called Jeepster. You know, it's, it was amazing. That is amazing. Uh, I'm going to take you back a little further than that, uh, because you lived in... Uh, you lived in New York. Uh, in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, uh, once upon a time. And uh, you told me that you saw Little Richard uh, oh. when, you were, it, it when was, he was really little. Uh, my heart be still. It was fantastic. I used to go to the uh, Alan Freed's rock and roll shows at the uh, yeah. Brooklyn, Brooklyn Fox Theater. Y'all are down with Alan Freed? You know who that is? Alan Freed, the king of rock and roll. Okay. He didn't invent rock and roll, right? No. He says he invented the phrase, but... Obviously, that's well, ancient. No, it, rock and roll was probably invented by... I, I read the book, but I forgot the guy's <laughs> name because he was a black man, of course. Right, yeah. it was Sunbomb. And Alan Freed took all the credit, you know. Yeah, well. But, um, no, what Alan Freed was a real pioneer of, of bringing it... Uh, mixing the audiences, having... You know, I was going to the Brooklyn Fox with black kids and white kids. It was the f- first time anyone ever saw that happen. I mean, it, that didn't happen in Sinatra's day. Or, really? Yeah, this is the first time we had segregated audiences in New York. Yeah. It took a little longer for other cities, you know, southern yeah. cities. But for New York, 
was sitting in a segregated audience, and the Brooklyn Fox had six shows a day. The first show was 10 a.m., and the last show was 1 1 a.m. in the morning. And these guys were there all day long, like Buddy Holly, uh, Little Richard, uh, Fats Domino. They'd just be all backstage in a cramped dressing room. So they would pour out into behind the stage, outside the stage door. And this is where I saw Little Richard for the first time in person. You know, I'd, I'd just seen him on stage. But here he was sitting on uh, an open Cadillac convertible, and the Cadillac was lavender. And he knew about this color long before it was popular. Uh, I'm presuming he had that custom made for himself? It was a lavender Cadillac with lavender leather, and, it had, and he had the top down, so he was sitting on top of the driver's seat, not in the driver's seat, but wow. on top of the driver's seat, and his friend, best friend was sitting next to him. And with his toe, he flicked a switch on the dashboard, and the antenna went up. Now, this is 1956. That was pure science fiction. Nobody yeah. had that yet. <laughs> That's impossible. Now, it's, you, know, you take it for granted, you know. Turn your ignition key in the thing. And he flicked it up, and then he flicked his toe down and it went down again and all of us kids went you know like (laughs) watching this dude you know and of course he had uh, eye makeup on I never saw a man wear eye makeup before yeah he had a lavender shirt by the way I forgot everything was the theme was lavender was he wearing lavender boots and pants everything and it was back it was outside the stage the show was just for us kids who wanted autographs and I got his autograph and uh that's fantastic. Yeah. I met everyone. They just made themselves available. There was no security. Right. There no big guys going to crack your head in or anything like that. It was terrific. Yeah. Oh, my God. That sounds so fantastic. How many, how many acts were on a bill like on an Alan Freed Rock and Roll show? It wasn't like now where you go and there's you know, two disappointing ones and then the other one. Um, it, I assume it was like six or seven, eight, ten. Yeah, it was probably more like ten. Ten, really? Yeah. So you would get like three doo-wop groups like uh, the Cadillacs. Uh, uh, Harvey Fakwa and the Moon Glows, yeah. you know, and they'd all do two songs each. And and Buddy Holly would he would you know he was in between everything. He was like kind of a white black man, you know, with his really music. yeah. Buddy Holly was cha- channeling uh, Bo Diddley, yeah, and all all his songs are Bo Diddley based. And uh, so they had one little Gibson amplifier in the middle of this fifty foot long stage, one little Gibson amplifier with a thirty uh, foot cable. So you knew when you heard the buzz of yeah. somebody was off stage, like, you know, yeah. plugging the thing into the guitar, you, see, uh, you knew a guitar player was going to yeah. come on. Now, who was that guitar player? Was it going to be Harvey Fakwa or uh, uh, Buddy Holly? You know, the, the suspense would drive. We would scream just hearing the buzz, you know. <laughs> and then out would come, would come Buddy Holly running out and playing the opening, and the, his Jerry Allison would be running out with the double bass, and they'd plop it down and they'd all huddle around the guitar amp and do two songs like that'll be the day and Peggy Sue and off they'd go off wow that was it uh, can I ask a question that's going to shock a lot of the people who paid to get in here tonight how much was an Alan Freed rock and roll show to, <laughs> to see I don't know to see that was probably five bucks three bucks I'm sorry you guys <laughs> I know you paid eight dollars and fifty cents to get in here tonight <laughs> Uh, wow, that, that's extraordinary. Uh, and how fun to have seen Buddy Holly and Little Life, Richard. Yeah. And, and I was always one of those kids who went right to the front and I would get my ribs crushed. Really? Yeah, oh, I had of to see, you were, see yeah. my idols. You know, I love those. Love those. You know, there was, a, there was a group called Mickey and Sylvia. Sure. And Love they is sang, Yeah, they sang a song called Love is Strange. I, I adored that group because Mickey was my guitar hero. This is well before Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck. 
So he and, Mick, uh, and Sylvia went up on stage and did two songs in, in this particular show. And I caught him running out backstage and I said, Mickey Baker, Mickey Baker, I'm a big fan, I'm a big fan. So he stopped and he talked to me. He goes, uh, I was just on my way to get a bagel and a coffee. And I go, well, uh, c- can I have a guitar pick? And he said, sure, you want a guitar pick? And he pulled a guitar pick out of his pocket and he gave it to me. That was probably a bigger gift than if Elvis gave me his guitar pick. Right. I idolized Mickey Baker. Mickey Guitar Baker. What's his name, Mickey Guitar Mickey Baker? Mickey Guitar Baker, yes. Were there many Sylvias or just the one Sylvia? Just Sylvia Vanderpool, mm. who became... She was, uh, had a, a long... Uh, what would, Sugar Hill was her label... And, uh, you know, she started... People in the crowd here are familiar with Sylvia Vanderpool, or one is. And didn't she have a nightclub in Harlem? Was it Sylvia's? Was that her, her nightclub? Now we're going back to you. Uh, wow, you failed on that one. Okay. No, uh, thank you for that information. I expect she did. Yeah, yeah. She, she was around for a long time. She's a beautiful woman. And I, I only died, I think, within the last uh, six or seven years. Mm. How did you get together with David Bowie? Was that via Mark Bolin? No, I had a good boss. His name was Denny Cordell, and uh, his company, he was one of the foremost record producers in England at the time. He produced The Move, um, Denny Lane. Yeah. Indeed, someone went, whoa. Yeah, everyone knows The Move. Uh, who else? Uh, Joe Cocker. Mm-hmm. And uh, he employed me as his assistant, and I was his apprentice. You know, I wanted to learn how you produce records. I knew everything about guitar chords and string writing, but he knew, he knew what I wanted, and I knew what he wanted. So it was a great trade-off. We, we were very close friends. And uh, the, the publishing company had a writer called David Bowie, and he was, you know, I never heard of him. And uh, I was called into uh, an office and someone played me the first David Bowie album. It was on the DRAM label. And it was the, the album with all his Anthony Newley impressions. Uh-huh. What kind of fool am I? Was he really yeah. doing those songs? Well, he sounded like yeah. <laughs> That's the David Bowie I met. And then he had one, one pop song on the album, one very dark Edgar Allan Poe kind of song, uh, Uncle Arthur or something like oh. that. So my, my boss said, uh, what do you think of him? I said, well, I like him. I said, he's got, he's got a great voice, but he's all over the place. He's just bouncing off the walls. <laughs> what does he want to do? He goes, well, would you like to meet him? I said, sure. I mean, I had nothing better to do. <laughs> you know, and I, I didn't meet, uh, I met Mark Boland, but we didn't even go into the studio yet. So for me, I, wanted, I was very interested in Bowie because he didn't sound like anybody, quite yeah. honestly. And uh, didn't sound like the Beatles again. I'm, I'm getting off course. I'm not finding these Beatles anywhere. So right. David Bowie was the one. So I, he was in the next room. It was kind of a setup. And uh, he introduced me to David. We started talking about uh, Frank Zappa, the Fugs, uh, all, the, all the wild stuff, the crazy stuff. This American uh, announcer called Ken Nordine, mm-hmm. who made this record. You know about Word jazz and all that. Yeah, word jazz. Yeah. You know, like all funky Ken stuff. Ken Nordine. Ken yeah. Nordine. <laughs> The, the color, you, you could probably, you probably know some of his monologues. Yeah, Ken Nardine was a really cool uh, uh, DJ, right? He was a DJ, yeah. And, and he used to do these, uh, uh, like, verbal jazz things where he'd go, Hey, it's kind of cold outside. Yeah, that's right. It's cold. And it would be multi-tracked, and it was just a vocal thing. They were really It was cool. way, way ahead of his time. In fact, I don't think anyone followed that act. No. Uh, but <laughs> David loved him, and he turned me on to Ken Nardine, and, and this is the kind of stuff we were interested in. And we spent the rest of the day walking up and down. It was a, it was a nice day, and we walked all the way from Oxford Street in London to uh, King's, um, King's, sure. Road, King's Road. And uh, we, we realized that we liked uh, 
black and white films that were the scratchier the better and in any obscure foreign language anything but the English language right. and as luck would have it a knife in the water just came out by Roman Polanski. Sure. So we, we just went right into the theater and we watched The Knife in the Water together. That was our first day. So I guess I thought you were going to say first date, which it kind of is. It sounds like a first date, I know. Listen, it was, it was absolutely great. And we've been fast friends since then. That's fantastic. And so that was right before T-Rex. And then, so you're involved with T-Rex and David Bowie from the very beginning. Right, at the same time. And they knew each other. They knew each other well. And I, I regret that I didn't have enough tape in those days because they would come around to my uh, apartment in uh, Earl's Court in London and I had a couple of guitars and a bass and bongo drums and we jammed all the time. Really? But I didn't have any tape, you know, like I was like a poor guy, you know, I, didn't, I couldn't afford tape. Tony, when, <laughs> when did theft not enter your mind? You worked at a recording studio. You worked for Cordell. You could have stolen a couple of four tracks. What did they use in those days? Four tracks? Uh, the, well, quarter inch tape. Quarter inch real tape. Real to real, yeah. A couple of dudes I named know. Alf, you know, in I the back know. of a van and whatnot. Well, I, I didn't know they'd be famous. That, that famous. You didn't know they'd be famous. <laughs> what a weak excuse that is for posterity. I've got cool photos, very okay. cool photos, which I put in my book. Yeah, so no, the book. Tell us the name of the book, and it's still available, and it's fantastic. I've read it. Uh, Bowie Bolin and the Boy from Brooklyn. It's on Amazon. But all y'all are working on lots of things. Tell me something you're working on now, and then we're going to Well, gonna I'm, I'm on. working on something amazing now. You wouldn't... Uh, you know, like last year, I did the new Bowie album. Uh-huh. No one knew he was making an album. Did uh, you know? Uh, I hope so. I was fair. <laughs> no, we were doing it, like, in this neighborhood, somewhere in this neighborhood, and... Uh, uh, he was kind of the weakest link because he was noticed. <laughs> People would notice him walking into this area and going in this door. You know, they didn't know who we were. But, uh, and they asked, they said, was that David Bowie? And uh, the people who worked, they said, oh, yeah, it was. They go, is he making a record? They go, no, he's not. That was it. That's how easy it was to keep the secret. You just... <laughs> He's going to Dunkin' Donuts. He just denied it. So there's, um, there's an awesome space oddity ring that's gone now. That's strawberry, and they're just a limited edition. Well, that was very exciting. It, my my head nearly burst keeping that secret for mm. two. It was two years. Two oh years my ago. God, two yeah. years yeah. to make a record? No, no, we did it in uh, like three week segments. Oh. You know, then we take a three weeks, and then we take a month or two off. I would go on and do I was other. Say, do you get health care for this? Jesus Christ. <laughs> Well, I got high blood pressure. Yeah. It was like, lying was, you know, they'd say, what are you doing now? And I go, oh, I, I, I can't tell you. They go, oh, it's David Bowie. And I go, shit, that's not going to work. So <laughs> I have to lie. So I said, uh, I call it Project X. And they go, oh, who is it? And I, and I said, it's a band. And so that, was, that way I would always say, I'm working on Project X. And it was a band, which it was. It was David and his band. You know, I didn't say the lead singer was David Bowie, that's all. But anyway, when that exploded, and the, the morning it was released on his birthday last year, January yeah. 8th, and uh, I'll speak for myself. I'm sure David was watching the internet like I was. Within three minutes, someone posted on one of the Bowie websites, holy shit, David Bowie put out a single. You know, yeah. and they went, okay, it's out now. And I could finally, finally talk. But what came out of my mouth for the next two weeks was like diarrhea. I, I had two years of backed up stuff to say about that album. And uh, well, it was a lot of fun. Well, it's a fantastic record. Now, what are you working on now, Tony? Okay, what I'm working on now is, well, I just finished the, an amazing album with Christine Young, uh-huh. someone who uh, I worked with for a few years now. And she's... Uh, very famous in Morrissey circles I, and I her own circles her. and all. She's she will be appearing with uh, the with Morrissey 
uh, at, uh, in his new, his summer tour, his, his UK tour. Can I talk about the other tour? Is it too early? Twirly. Twirly, okay. Yeah, there's another tour she's going to be on. It's Twirly. It's called Project Y. Project Y. <laughs> and it has and, a male uh, chromosome, strangely. See, you, see the, you see, this is why I'm a mad we can't man. Go. I have to You'll never make stupid. it in show business. You're shitty at lying. My manager will look at me and go, they really want you for that Disney thing, but they said no. Well, um, now, 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 they're going in a different direction. They wanted a Chinese guy. I, I will say something. That was very funny. Thank you. Um, I do this sometimes. I know, you're good at it. I'm working on a joke. It's going to take me a couple years to fucking concoct it all the way. I lie about when I go in the studio, though. People are like, was that Greg Poops working on a dick joke? I'm like, yeah. I, I call this project Knob X. It's going to take a while to incubate. Because I like to go over and rough off all the edges like a lapidary so that there's no, uh, you know, snagging when it enters there's, you. There's no comeback to it. Exactly. So that yeah. it's a finality. Boom. Because I don't want to tell a joke and have the audience repost. Uh, I want to I be like Hiroshima. Boom, it's over. Yeah. And it's just people with flippers watching Clean. me after that. Clean. Clean. Yeah, no. With, with some fallout. Just right, a little, lot, yeah, 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 yeah. Some fallout. Yeah. Okay. A giant fish on its side after I tell it. You know. <laughs> wow, he really laid waste with that one. <sighs> So, uh, so you work with Christine, and then, yeah. and, and, then uh, and Christine's on tour with Maz, and, and uh, she's fantastic in concert. I have seen her. Yeah. And then what else? And then well, right now, I, 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 it's going to be announced in a week or so, so I'm going to say it now. I'm working with Daphne Guinness. Oh. And, uh, you know, she is well-known as a fashionista. Yeah, is she she's ever? She's a, a very beautiful woman, and she's... Pale uh, and ethereal, uh, I should uh, say. She's, she's beautiful. She's a queen. But... Um, she has been secretly writing an album. This is another secret. For years. How come musicians work in secret? Take it on the line. <laughs> hey, Daphne Guinness, it's cool. We weren't going to bug you and shit. Yeah, we, we found out Beyonce was working in secret, too. It's funny, she did that the same year as David came out. You know, now it's a secret. Everything's a secret. Beyonce. But anyway, Daph- I'm working with Daphne Guinness. She's got an incredible voice, and she wrote a batch of songs with her, her partner, Pat Dunn, that are. Um, uh, inspired by the psychedelic 60s. I love it. Yeah, it's There's a no real... twerking or anything, right? No, no twerking. Thank fuck. No. Okay. No, you... I'm all for twerking. It's just been over-twerked the last year. They, in fact, you know, it's singers in those days, like the female singers, they, right. just, they just had their fringe and they looked deadpan at the camera and mm-hmm. saying, that was the uh, total opposite of twerking. I would oh, say. no, no. Yeah. The Grace Slick yeah, school. If they were twerking, we wouldn't know. No. They would do it in privacy. I guess you can't tell us when it's going to come out because it's a secret and you weren't supposed to tell us that you were making it. Uh, no, it's going to come out, but I don't know when, honestly. This year sometime. Awesome. Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, Tony Visconti. Thank you, pal. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed it. Hello, party people. My name's Greg Proops. You know me as the smartest man in the world. You also know that I rarely steer you wrong. Well, in any case, our sponsor this week is called Squarespace. And for a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code Proopcast, and you can get an all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Yeah, you can do it at home by yourself. But what if I need help? They have a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week support team that lives in New 
New York City. Well, I don't know if they live there. They might live in the outlying boroughs, but they gather in New York City each night around a fire in a trash can, and they warm themselves with fingerless gloves like in that Jane Child video from the 80s. And then they rise in the night to accept your phone calls and your awesome emails to them because they're all about helping you. Squarespace recently added e-commerce to their platform. So if you want to set up shop and sell things, you can do that in just a few minutes. They really care about your design. All the templates are extremely clean and allow your content to be the focus of your website. Everything is drag and drop, and it's everything you need to create an exceptional website. If you decide to sign up for Squarespace, use the offer code PROOPCAST, P-R-O-O-P-C-A-S-T, to get 10% off and show your support for the smartest men in the world. I thank you, Squarespace thanks you, and the kitten inside thanks you. Not it is appealing. Uh, wow. Well, that's all the time we have. I'm joking, of course. We're going to get our next guest up here as soon as humanly possible. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree where oof the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to the sunless sea. Our next guest has promised that Xanadu will be builded here tonight. You know him as the playwright who wrote Boys in the Band. Ladies and gentlemen, give all your love to Mr. Mark Crowley. And the band played on. Hello, Mark. How are you, pal? Sit down there, will you? Vodka. It's a cold remedy. It goes good with cough syrup. Do you want some water or are you cool? I'll have some in a minute. Okay, groovy. Oh, good. How are you, Mart? I'm just great, thank you. And thank you for asking me to come here tonight. It's such a I've pleasure. I've enjoyed it so far. Oh, good. You're the one. Um, <laughs> it's nice to have one person enjoy it. I don't, I don't, my ego's huge, and I really don't require a group approval. That's the difference between me and other performers. Oh, good. Other people want everyone to like them all at once. I'm willing to have it come in in dribs and drabs and let that be enough. <laughs> But it's nice that you're modest. <laughs> I, I have to be. When you have my amount of talent, it's easy to be modest. <laughs> Humility is one of my most outstanding features. <laughs> so, Greg, listen, I, I'm not up to you, so lead me on here. All right, I will lead like you on. No, <laughs> we're going to start at the very beginning. You're from Vicksburg, Mississippi. Yeah, I was and Lip, where are you from? In Mississippi. Lipsinka's not from Mississippi. Oh, well, then never mind. <laughs> but the hideous maid, John Epperson, behind Lipsinka is from Hazelhurst, Mississippi. Hazelhurst, yeah. Mississippi. There you are. And my mother's from Casilla, Mississippi. And uh, she lived in Brandon, Mississippi. What a horrible tree. <laughs> Threesome, that is. Isn't it? <laughs> Mississippi is like, what, um, Haiti without the baseballs? <laughs> I remember going to a catfish place there with my father and mother. Uh, and I don't know, did you see this Obama thing this week where uh, he gave a speech a couple days ago to some, uh, you know, club in Chicago, and there was lots of uh, willing youths and whatnot, and, yes, and needy youths. And he said, uh, oh. I didn't have a father, so I used to get high. <laughs> I didn't think about the damage it did. And all I could think of was, um, I did have a father, and that's why I got high, okay? <laughs> if I had to face that cocksucker every fucking day... My father, my mother would go away sometimes, and my dad would cook. And my dad, my mother was from Mississippi, so she could make collards, fried chicken, you know, biscuits from scratch, whatnot. My father, 
I don't even know how to put this delicately. What the Serbs did to the Croats during the war is what my dad could be called to the Hague for the crimes against fucking pork chops that he would commit. Like he would put a pork chop in the pan and turn it on turbo nuke and it would just burn and I'd be like you're cooking it on too high and he'd be like he was my dad was from Brooklyn from Bay Parkway and he'd go what the fuck and that was the answer I'd get what are you a fucking expert on fucking cooking and shit and I'd be like you're burning it and then I was a delicate child and then he'd flip it over burn the other side and it would be raw in the middle and I'd be like I wish mom was here and he'd go like you fucking and I'd be like so I have a lot when Obama said he didn't have a dad that made him get high I was like (laughs) and then he said the damage it did and I was like what damage you're president (laughs) that is the shittiest case the shittiest case against getting high I used to get high and now I'm president then that proves you can get high and still be president (laughs) didn't do any damage if you'd been Vladimir Putin then yes we could have gone ew you're creepy and have a weird facelift so starting out in Mississippi and then ending up uh, here in New York City how, how does it begin? How did you get out of Mississippi? How old were you? I don't know. You know, I mean, it was really uh, an escape act, you know. Uh, Which town? Uh, worthy, worthy of Houdini, really. Yeah. Uh, I tried to run away a few times, and then, you know, my family came after me. And, uh, <laughs> and finally they made a deal with me that if I wouldn't try it again, uh, I could go to a college that I, of my own choosing. Because my father wanted me to go to uh, Notre Dame, and I said, Dad, you know, I'm not a football player. (laughs) So um, I found a drama school in Washington, D.C., and uh, it was very famous at the time in the 50s and uh, was run by some very famous people. Um, I'll tell you their names, but it won't mean anything to you. I mean, Walter Kerr, who eventually became the drama critic, was my teacher there, and a man named Alan Schneider, who was the original director of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Mm. So it did have some good people uh, teaching me. And uh, and a lot of, you know, um, uh, trips to New York from uh, Washington to see all the shows. And I never wanted to go below the Mason-Dixon line again, you know. Have you ever? Or do you ever? I don't anymore. I mean... Finally, everybody's died. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> it's a relief, isn't it? <laughs> like you don't have to look at that plane schedule anymore. Exactly, exactly. Or change planes in Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you went to university, but uh, uh, how, did, how did you get hooked up? Because you, you worked with Ilya Kazan. How did that I happen? Did. Well, actually, I met Ilya Kazan, I mean, for all of you out there who don't know that is, and have you ever heard of him at all? Yeah, this, okay. this crowd's down. He was a very famous director in his time. He was kind of the Joe Mantello of uh, <laughs> the 50s and 60s, and he did some very famous plays on Broadway uh, by the likes of Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams. Uh, so he uh, directed the original Death of a Salesman and the original uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and Streetcar Named Desire. 
Anything we've heard of? <laughs> Let's get off this obscure arty shit for a second, shall we? Any- All night long with David Bowie and Tennessee Williams. Jesus Christ, when are they going to be in my wheelhouse? It happened to be one of the trips home for Christmas that I was dreading, and um, I thought, well, this is going to be 10 days of real uh, bamboo shoots under the fingernails, you know. So uh, when I got, got there, somebody knew that I would be bored, and they said, uh, you know, they are making a movie up the road. And uh, I said, oh, really? That sounds fascinating. Um, who's in it, and what is it? And they said, oh, I don't know. It's something by Tennessee Williams. Uh, and so I checked it out. I went driving up the road, and I was stopped by the sheriffs. Uh, and uh, I asked what was going on, and uh, I found out that they were making a movie called Baby Doll. Uh-huh. And uh, it was indeed a Williams script, and Kazan was directing it. And I just found out that the, the, the sheriff wouldn't let me in. I mean, it was roped. They didn't have yellow tape in those days. It was just a rope to go around your neck if it didn't go around the car. <clears throat> so um, I went to a, a, a kind of a dump where they ate every night called Doe's Eat Place, Dominic's Eat Place. It's still there in the Delta in Greenville, Mississippi, where all those great black jazz musicians come from. And, um, you know, I, I just had the nerve and the gall to walk up to him and say, uh, Mr. Kazan, uh, I've just been in New York and I just saw Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and uh, can we talk about it, you know? <laughs> and so uh, he was, I think, fascinated by my being so forward, but uh, we got to talking. He, he wrote a pass out on a, on a Napkin, a paper napkin for me, and I went back and spent the uh, the rest of the ten days on the set uh, uh, of Baby Doll. And you know, by the end of that, I was madly in love with him. And I said, you know, Mr. Kazan, please, I, I've got to get out of here. I, I want to go to work for you. And he said, No, go back and finish your education, and then you come to New York and look me up. And uh, you would think that's just what I would do, but uh, however. In transit from Washington, New York, um, the script girl who had been on Baby Doll, um, I called her the first night I got in New York and asked her what she was doing, and she said, "Well, I'm, uh, we got to shoot tomorrow on a on a three week quickie. Uh, w- would you like a job as a production assistant?" And I said, "Oh my God, yeah." So I went, did that job, and one job led to another, led to another. Famous pictures, uh, flops, some of them, um, like, uh, but famous with famous people. There was a Sidney Lumet film with uh, Marlon Brando and Anna Magnani called The Fugitive Kind. Yeah. And then I went to Butterfield 8 from that. And uh, was working. That she won her Oscar for. That, oh, that's right. Yeah, Elizabeth Taylor did. That obscure yeah. movie, yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and I was just walking home one night uh, and, uh, on 57th Street, and I saw this man looking in an art gallery with an old baggy uh, raincoat on. It was from behind, and I walked over to him and said, Mr. Kazan, this is two years later. And he turned around and took one look at me and said, What took you so long? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I said, you know, listen, I'm, I, I'm really ready for you now. I've worked on three films. And uh, yeah. 
So uh, I, I quit Butterfield 8 and went to work for him preparing uh, what he was about to direct next, which was Splendor Can we go back grass. for a second that you yeah. just said you quit Butterfield 8? Yeah. I was just thinking about my career for a second there. <laughs> no, go on. <laughs> I just can't imagine quitting an Elizabeth Taylor picture. But oh, well, uh, you know, um, I, I had just thought th- th- this is... Uh, this is my big chance. Yeah, right. You know, to I got to take Kazan. it. Yeah, work with so, him. So, what did he pick you up for? What, I mean, what? What, what was the next picture? <laughs> well, unless he picked picture. you up, in which case I want to know about that. <laughs> no, he didn't. He picked up a lot of people, but they were all uh, blonde <laughs> women. <laughs> or women, okay. <laughs> anyway, um, it was Splendor in the Grass. Um, oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, the picture that we went to work on there. Yeah. So, um, where did you shoot Splendor in the Grass? It was shot all over New York. I mean, all the interiors were on 125th Street in a studio, I think, still there. That's a TV studio now. And uh, the, uh, the exteriors that were supposed to be in Kansas were in Poughkeepsie. Or, and uh, we did some of it on Long Island. And um, I don't know, found a high school here, and the waterfall was in Poughkeepsie. How long did you work uh, with Kazan, or for Kazan? Well, I just worked through him from the end of a picture that he was finishing up uh, called Wild River, Mm -hmm. and through the whole production preparation of Splendor, through the shooting of Splendor, and the post-production on that. And then he went to Turkey to... uh, research his next picture, which took him three years, which was about his family and his family origins. And that turned out to be a picture that really didn't get great reviews at all, and it's very unknown, but it's, uh, it's a fabulous picture called America, America. Mm. Yeah. Now, is that where you met Natalie Wood? On- I met her on Splendor, yeah. And, oh. and uh, about her, she, she was just happening, you know, I mean... Uh, she was dying to work with him to save her career because Warner Brothers had been chewing her up in all of these rotten roles that she was wrong for. They were sensational, junky pictures. Uh, and so she was dying to prove her mettle as an actress uh, with Kazan. And it happened during uh, the making of... of um, Splendor in the Grass, that uh, she was cast as Maria in West Side Story. So she didn't have any time. They wanted her, they, they were waiting on West Side. They, in fact, they were shooting on the streets of New York, the, the uh, prologue opening dance sequence. And uh, she had to quit Splendor on a Friday night and show up to shoot West Side on a Monday morning. And she said, I, I can't do it. You know what I mean? I, I have to go, leave everything here in the apartment. So you don't have a job because Anne's going to Turkey. Why don't you pack up the apartment and come to California and just work f- for me on West Side as my uh, secretary, assistant? And I said, okay, just for that one picture. And I went out there, and I was there for seven years. You know, so, yeah. And you worked with Natalie the whole time for seven years? Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I really wanted to get, uh, you know, West Side Story, I thought, was going to be like three months. It turned out to shoot for six. And uh, then after that, she, uh, she was going from picture to picture to picture, and she had to pay off Warner Brothers with a film and do Gypsy. 
And she said, please stay, stay uh, through that. So I did the, stay through that second one with her. And then I said, I've got to be a writer. And uh, she said, well, I'll introduce you to some of the guys at William Morris. And she got me an agent. So we were, remained friends until she died. Now, when you were writing them, were you thinking about writing plays at that point, or were you writing screenplays? Uh, well, I was writing, actually, television shows, uh-huh. because, you know, uh, live TV was so big in New York, and uh, uh, these famous writers were coming out of television, like Patty Chayefsky, and those uh, teleplays that were famous, that were made into movies, like Marty, mm-hmm. and Middle of the Night. And, uh, so I was trying to get my work on, on television first, and... Uh, um, you know, little by little, I had studied drama, and uh, I thought, you know, I'd better go back and write a play, and um, I did. <laughs> this might sound like a, a completely disingenuous question. I'm going to ask it anyway. Now, you'd studied drama, and you'd worked for Kazan, and you'd worked with Natalie Wood. Mm. Now, did you always know you wanted to write something, or was it something that came upon you? You thought, now I want to do this. Oh, no. I had always... Uh, were you writing as a teenager? Then? Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. I mean, I was trying to, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. It was just do, writing. Um, I tried to write a novel when I was 13 years old, but, uh, you know. Do you still have that novel? <laughs> I, w- I wish. Um, yeah, I, I didn't know what format it was going to take. Uh, and so uh, uh, it turned out to be plays, and I guess that was just a love for the theater. So that I if I can jump forward a little, what was the impetus for Boys in the Band then? Were you, did you see something that inspires you to write that? Did it come fully blown into your head? Was it a, a process that took years? Well, it, it was a, actually born out of failure, like so many things mm. are, you know. Uh, I had uh, gotten a couple of jobs in television. In fact, uh, I, I uh, worked on a script at 20th Century Fox, and I wrote it for Natalie. And she was to play twin sisters, identical twins, and one was straight and one was gay. She had no problem with doing this at all. And May I ask what year this is? 62. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so her agent didn't want her to do it. Uh, Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> and even Daryl Zanuck, who had bought the thing, uh, hated it. And he was the head of 20th Century Fox, you know. He used to send me notes all the times and say, take out the dykisms. <laughs> we would fall on the floor laughing at this new word, you know. Uh, and then I'd send him back the script, and he'd, I'd get another memo back, and he'd say, still too many dykisms. What are so, dykisms? I don't know. I don't know. It was I want to wear a big shirt. Anyway, one sister was gay. They were yeah. both being played by Natalie. Yeah. The straight. And, uh, Anyway, and the, the picture uh, got the, pull, the plug pulled on it two weeks before it was started to shoot. So that was a huge blow to me. And from there, I went and wrote um, a television pilot for Betty Davis. Mm. And uh, she was playing a flamboyant interior decorator like, like Auntie Mame. And she had an assistant in it. So I wrote the part for Paul Lind. An, you know, and all the networks said, oh, God, no, we can't have a gay man, you know. And I thought she and, he and Davis would be hilarious. Yes. Yeah. They would have been. But they uh, cast the part with a woman. So failure again, that, that pilot got shot, but 
it didn't sell. And uh, the decorator I, is on YouTube. <laughs> Thank you, John. <laughs> John. Oh, I'm sorry. Lip Sinka. Lip. Well, lip. John is his evil maid. <laughs> anyway, I think that was the evolution of it. Two failures, and then, uh, you know, I, I realized that I was trying to write something about a gay character. They wanted been a woman, wanted been a man. And um, then I started putting this thing together, which everybody really thought I had uh, had a nervous breakdown about uh, when I told them what I was working on. However, that's well, so when you, when you finished it, were people like, oh, you know, what was the reception? Well, um, I was just lucky uh, because the reception was totally negative. I mean, as far as doing it, you know, uh, while I was writing it, uh, people that I trusted and that had met and, and had... Uh, intelligence like Dominic Dunn uh, you know who was a, an author who's dead now uh, he was the head of a television company in Hollywood and he had hired me for several things and he's, he said I'm worried about you I think you're going over the edge what what are you working on and then when I told him he said Mart now listen I think it's great therapy that you're working <laughs> and keeping yourself busy but if this doesn't get done don't let it throw you. You know what I mean? Oh. Yeah, and he thought I was going to really get carted away. <laughs> well, then who was it who, 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 who championed you? I mean, well, this I, is a, this, it's a bold move to write a play uh, with an all-gay cast, uh, with gay, uh, being gay as the topic in, yeah. in that era. And then it, it's we, the uh, first one. It, well, it was the first one that was uh, a full-length uh, drama and it was uh, a crossover play. I mean, in, in, in other words, it uh, it sold to uh, to a heterosexual audience. Mm. And, and uh, before that, the only things that had begun to sprout were one acts done at the Cafe Chino, and I think Lansford Wilson had written one, and um, I don't know another writer had written another. But this was the first full-length uh, play that clicked, you know. I mean, a- after the reviews finally came in. Getting it done was a bit of an uphill battle. Well, how many people told you no before you finally... Who, who, who helped you get it done? Well, Natalie came into the picture again. Uh, you, uh, she was engaged to an Englishman who had a, uh, an agency called London International... And uh, they had offices here in New York. And uh, I said, I don't have an agent, and nobody's biting, and i got to take this to somebody. And she said, well, I'll speak to uh, Richard. His name was Richard Gregson. And um, she married him later and my, had my goddaughter, with whom I'm very close. Uh, Anyway, uh, so Richard Gregson sent me to this woman in New York, and this is how it was. Uh, uh, When I showed up, she hadn't read it, and she said, oh, yeah, 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 you're the guy that Richard sent. Uh, I'm supposed to read your script. She said, "Um, I haven't read it yet, so I've got this script here in a file, you know, a stack somewhere, and why don't you go out and see a movie and come back in a couple of hours? (laughs) And so I did, and I went down, and I started looking all around the marquees, and I saw Andy Warhol's flesh was playing, you know. Perfect. And I thought, great. I well, can way spend to while away the hours. Yeah, yeah. And, 
Then I went back to the office, and she was so nervous. She wouldn't look me in the eye, and she was smoking like a house on fire and straightening everything on the desk. And she said, I, I can't send this out of, out of this office with our letterhead on it. This is like some weekend at Fire Island. And I said, well, yeah, that's the point. And, uh, she said, well, 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 well I, who am I going to send it to? Uh, I, nobody we can put our letterhead on. I thought, that fucking letterhead, you know. I mean, she mentions it once more. So I said, do you know Richard Barr? Because I thought that anybody who had had the guts to produce Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf wouldn't blink at this script. And she said, um, of course I know him. Why, why do you ask? And I said, well, you know, I think he might. He runs a workshop with Edward Albee in the village. Maybe they'd be interested. And she said, I could, I could never with the letterhead to, to Richard. But I, I'll give him a call. I'll tell him what it sort of is and that uh, we're, I'm sending it unofficially. Now, where can you be reached? I, I wrote down a number of a friend who, whose apartment I was staying in, and the next morning about 10, the phone rang, and the guy came in to, to the bedroom and said, there's a woman on the phone, and she won't say she is, but she says very important. So I went and said yes, and she said, I don't believe this. I, I messengered that script to Richard Barr last night, and he wants to know if you can have a drink with him and Edward Albee at 5 o'clock. <laughs> and, and, and then she knew I didn't have an agent, so she said, here's my private number. Ah! And, 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 you know, you take it and you right. call me the minute you get out of that yeah. meeting, you know. And they, uh, Barr read it and wanted to do it in the workshop and see if it would work or not. And it did, and then it was moved off Broadway. That when you started off Broadway? Oh, it's it remained off Broadway. Is that where it played? Played off Broadway for uh, a thousand three years. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was going to close at a thousand performances, and I said to Richard, "Oh God, let's let me be Scheherazade and let's do a thousand and one nights." (laughs) So it played for a thousand and one performances. Fantastic. Yeah. And is legendary to this day. Uh, I think we have to go because that's all the time we have. I'm so sorry. I want to thank everybody that's been on the show tonight. The fabulous lip singer Tony Visconti. And Mr. Mark Crowley, ladies and gentlemen. My name's been Greg Poops. You can visit me on gregpoops.com. Every page that you turn to is not your page. Every bell that rings for you be a cool papa bell. I wish you nothing but love tonight. Thank you, Mark. Curtain up, light the lights, 